Zona Rosa, the Northland's premier shopping, dining, and entertainment district, is proud to be a partner of the Northland Symphony Orchestra. Zona Rosa is your getaway for fine dining, exceptional entertainment, and endless shopping possibilities. Zona Rosa offers over 100 of your favorite stores and restaurants, including Barnes & Noble, Dillard's, Gap, White Barn Candle Company, the Kansas City Improv, DraftKate, Bravo, Hereford House, and more. Zona Rosa, I-29 and Berry Road in the Northland. For more information, visit Zonarosa.com. Zona Rosa, a world away from the everyday. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Arts and KC podcast presented by the Northland Symphony. This is Jim Murray. Hi everyone. I'm John Coster. And first I think we should get some thank yous out of the way. Absolutely. Uh, I just want to say thanks to everyone who came out to the first concert of the season. It was great to see uh, so many friends and supporters for our first concert. And then the next week... Taste is Rosa. Great success as always. Absolutely. Thanks for all the support, both in your attendance and financially. And this episode, as you heard, is also sponsored again by Zona Rosa, and so I think another round of thanks goes to them. Absolutely. I mean, we really could not do what we do without their support, that and they've is been correct. supporting for a long time. A long time. Um, so, today, we've got kind of a... This is a very short turnaround topic, in the sense that mm-hmm. when we were talking last episode about some of the music I was listening to, thanks to Jim's recommendations. You're welcome. Thank you, again. <laughs> uh, we got into a discussion, when I talked to him about the song I was listening to, he asked which what, recording. What recording? Which, com- uh, which conductor, which symphony, etc., because, as we both agree, that makes can make a giant difference in what, what you think of the piece, despite Absolutely. it being the exact same piece. Absolutely. Um, and so we... Got talking about it some more, and we're like, we should really spend some more time yeah. diving into this, and uh, so that's what we're that's what we're gonna do. Yep, sounds great. Let's do it. All right, so welcome back. The the piece that kind of kicked off this whole discussion was Song for Democracy, which we won't spend any time talking about because <laughs> I railed on or, or praised it for yes. for a good long I'm time. I'm sure by time. now everyone has listened to it. I hope so. If not, <laughs> you better do it. Um, but when when I said that, Jim immediately said, "Well, which which version?" Right. And, uh, I and maybe cor- I'm the only one who cares about that. You're not. Okay. I, I, I correctly said yes. Howard Hansen directed right. his own piece, and so Correct. but. What we, we then talked about was that um, when, this is one of the adding another layer of difficulty to discovering yeah. classical music is when I typed in Tchaikovsky Symphony Well, sure, number like four. something for how many options did right. you get? I, dozens. Yes, endless it's, probably. Right, exactly. And yes. so, and picking, like, if you pick the wrong one, you might not like the piece. Is there a wrong one? Well, I think that's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, so it would fall under the idea of interpretation. And we'll talk a little bit more about the composer-conductor thing as well. Uh, but, you know, you can pull up, let's just take five different versions of Tchaikovsky Symphony Number no. 4. Um, you're going to get on the, the easiest differences that you're probably going to hear, and you actually will see this probably before you even press play, is that the durations will be different. Right. And the durations are different because tempi are different, tempos are different. And, you know, 
part of what the conductor decides, part of the interpretation of what goes on with the conductor, and this would be true the same for a solo piano player who's doing a sonata or any musician, is making decisions on tempo. Um, some composers give you very specific information and give you a, an area to hit, others a little bit more vague. Um, and no matter what the tempo is, it's not going to be robotic, right? There's going to be ebb and flow. There's going to be speeding up and slowing down. And these are the decisions that uh, the conductor will make on a variety of things. Um, knowledge of that composer's work, knowledge of the performance practice of the period, um, what they think works best musically and most effectively for that right. What the players situation. can handle. What the players can handle. Paired with that is kind of what um, I would call as the human mixing board effect. And I would say that for like the mainstream standard repertoire, you're not going to see a huge variance in tempo. Um, but you will see variance in what conductors choose to emphasize. Uh, so when I go back to like the human mixing board idea, it's what, you know, it's what I jack up on the board, what I think is the most important, what I want to make sure the audience is hears. Chimes, for example. Chimes, for example, <laughs> something I always want the audience to hear. Um, maybe I want that counter melody to be a little louder. Maybe I want it to be a little softer. Um, and so that's, that will be different than somebody else who's conducting that piece of music. Um, maybe like last night uh, in rehearsal, we worked a lot on articulation. And so um, for, what, for this particular piece we were doing, you know, I might want the chord notes to be a little bit longer um, because I think it suits the style of the melody better. Um, I think it's very difficult. I think it's dangerous to, for you to try to channel like, I think this is what the composer wants. I think, I think con conductors used to do that, and I think that kind of days of pretentiousness is gone. I, I can't sit here and tell you that I think I know what Beethoven would want. Right. What I can tell you is I've done a lot of Beethoven's music. I know a lot of his contemporaries. I know a lot about the performance practice in the period. And out of all of that, I'm going to make a conclusion about what I think needs to happen with that articulation, that phrase, what section needs to be louder, what section needs to be softer, right. pacing, how the tempo of the first movement relates to the tempo of the second movement. Like, it's not just... Right, but it's know, all subjective, too, to your personal is. preference. It is, right? Because Absolutely. at the end of the day, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, yep. but you're not going to do something that you don't like or sounds good, right, right. even if it were theoretically more correct. Right. I'm going to I'm going to adhere to a, a philosophy of, of, you know, we talk about fidelity to the score. So fidelity to the score is trying to accurately represent the score based on the information that you have from the composer. Since the majority of them are dead, that's the best thing we've got. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it in a consistent way that I, that I agree with both academically, that I agree with musically, um, emotionally. And that's why I think, that's why I think it's so great about actually um, this whole genre of, I was going to say classical music, I prefer, prefer to say concert hall music, because, um, you know, what I love about jazz is it, you have that improvisation element, which actually started in classical music in the Baroque period, like most keyboard parts were improvised. And people are like, well, you play the same stuff over and over again, and you're locked into the music. No, we're not. How many different versions are there of Tchaikovsky right. for? That's, that's that many interpretations. And where I would never say that mine is exactly right, I would never say a colleague of mine's is exactly wrong. I may disagree with some of the choices that that colleague makes, but it doesn't invalidate the presentation of that work. As long as we're all kind of understanding that we're trying to represent this work in the way that we believe it should be recommended or, you know, presented. And I think that, you know, there... <laughs> There are some composer and conductors over the year, Richard Wagner. Okay, Richard Wagner, the German um, right. 
composer also was a very successful conductor, and he conducted all nine Beethoven symphonies. And when he was done, he wrote a book, so we would all know the right way to do it. I have that book. It's quite a read. That's very um, German. Of him. It, it is, and it's, <laughs> and it's very ego of him, which is right. which is his way. And so I think we're beyond that. And I think so. What's for you, the listener? What it allows is for you to um, choose, you know, which you like better. Like, do you like that movement slower? Do you like it faster? Um, the other thing that happens when you're talking globally about uh, recordings. Um, and really, most professional recordings are going to be very high standard. You're not going to, you know, somebody in their garage can record a song and upload it, and that's great. Orchestras don't do that. Right. If you have a recording contract and you're out, okay, you're going to have a certain standard. But as you go around the world, you'll get different strengths. Um, and there are certain specific orchestras, like we've talked about Chicago used to have this, you know, was known for their brass sound. Um, there, are, or there are European orchestras whose classical styling with Mozart is just renowned, renowned around the world. And so um, you can sometimes tell, like, where the orchestra is from when you listen to them by the way they approach certain music. And that's just regional differences, you know, right. different stylistic, stylistic preferences, um, yeah. preferences and also the music director. Um, you know, is it a new conductor with this orchestra? Is it a, you know, that kind of thing? Well, those, and especially in Europe, I mean, those those countries have a much longer, like, track of composers yes. and, and influencers to influence it. Yep. A French orchestra has... Right. Centuries of French composers right. that influence the way that the French play yes. non-French music, for sure. And but I also say that you know it's important that we understand that you know if I'm not French, it doesn't mean I can't do French music, right? Right. right. But I'm going to do it differently than the French are going to do it, probably. Um, but I'll try to do it in an informed way. So what I so you know what I always try to do when I'm studying pieces of music. Um, obviously, a lot of it I know and it's in my head and I've got it, um, but and I've got my sound. So, like, I don't really listen to versions of music that I'm working on because I don't want to get my what I'm doing confused with, you know, I'm not I'm not interested in imitating somebody else's version of a piece of music. And I think that's where classical musicians and I think sometimes people look at us and say, oh, they just they're just always imitating. No, we're not. And and so, you know. We just did Beethoven 1, right? Mm -hmm. So my Beethoven 1 in 2017 is probably not exactly the same as what I did 15 years ago because I'm different. I know more. I've changed. I've worked with more orchestras. I've, I've inputted so many more information that I might change it a little bit as I go. Uh, so, you know, you have, you know, the basic stuff from tempo to balance to regional country differences to... Then you have certain composers that are certain conductors that are really champions of certain composers, and they just become the expert on those people, and that's really fantastic. Um, and and you know you listen to Howard Hansen conducting his own music, and that's that's pretty awesome when the conductor is a good when the composer is a good conductor. But generally, uh, that's not the case. Generally, composers are happy to give their music to a conductor because composers number one, I mean, they're so closely related. Um, and when I've had worked with living composers and I've done their works, you know, if somebody plays a wrong note in rehearsal, the composer takes it pretty personally. And I just know that that person missed a, missed a key signature and we'll go back and we'll get it. So I have a little bit of separation that allows me not to right. – it's not, it, it's not my baby. It's not my child, you know. And I can be the mediator between what the orchestra is doing and what the conductor wants. And, boy, when you work with a living um, – composer or what the composer wants when you work with a living composer that's fantastic because at the end of the rehearsal or whatever you can sit down and talk to them they'll take notes and you know which i don't have the luxury to do with many of the composers right. that i work with um right. 
because they are no longer with us. So, um, you know, it's and all conductors are influenced by other other people. So, two questions. Yep. So, the do you think there's a genre or time period in classical music that is more open to wide ranges of interpretation versus more like, for example, not a whole lot of ways to play like a Bach cello. So not you know sweet like you know some of the more standard or or is it or is you know, or do you think there's just as much of a range of motion over there as there would be for something in the late romantic? Period? Okay, so generally the way I interpret this, the way I, this is a great question, um, and the way I, I I view it is that we operate under the presumption that when Bach was alive, that he was that he knew his music would be performed after he died, and he did not. Um, the vast this is a topic for another podcast, but. <laughs> Um, during we the, do, we keep doing I know, this. we keep doing it, which is good. Um, during the Baroque period, the vast majority of music that was performed was by living composers, and they had no expectation of, after they died, their music would continue. Um, we see that continue kind of in the, the classical period. When in the classical period, you don't see a whole lot of Baroque music being performed. It's mostly living classical composers. Then we get in the Romantic period, and we have guys like Mendelssohn. So Mendelssohn is an early conductor, and Mendelssohn it kind, of, kind of leads the Bach revival. And then people in the Romantic period go, oh, my gosh, they're doing music from, like, two periods ago. Or they wouldn't think it that way. But, right, you know, right, right. That means if my music's really good, I've got a shot at immortality. I've got a shot at my music outliving me. What that does to the page is you get – once you have – once – there's a possibility of your music outliving you. You get detailed information on that page. Because composers write music in order to have it performed, but they really want it to be performed accurately. Well, if they're not there, they're going to need to leave a lot of detailed information. Right. For example, I have a score, uh, I have several Mahler symphonies in Mahler II on the page. And Mahler, great composer, but also great conductor. He led the New York Phil for a couple years over here. Um, he... There's a there's a note that the uh, tuba it plays, and it's a very soft and very low note that goes for a, a, quite a bit of time. There's an asterisk in my score right next to that note, and on the bottom of the page in German, Mahler writes, "If your tubist can't play this soft enough, have your bassoonist do it instead." So that's a timeless statement, right? Like right, right now, that is, if Luke can't do it, have John do it instead. As you back up. And you may know this as a violinist, like if you see, like if you look at original music by Bach, right. there's very little information on there. Extremely little. <laughs> right. So, so in a way, I think there's more room for interpretational differences the further back you go. And you know, Bach worked 27 years with the same group of musicians. He didn't have to write anything on the page because if he wasn't there, there was a good chance that they knew what he wanted, and if they were unsure, he, they could ask him. Right. So that's – and then, of course, modern music, I think, in the 20th century is even more – like, you get a lot of detailed yeah, information. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Especially in being a percussionist. Oh. There's, there's a ton of – And like, that's where you see a lot of the growth. Yeah. But I don't – but, I mean, with that being said, you can find just as, as many – just as many versions of a Bach cello suite as you can of a Barber symphony. So, I don't know. I think the bigger difference – the I think the bigger differences in interpretation are further back. I think we get closer – Right. You know. Okay. That's just my theory. No, that's, that's reasonable. All that's right. Like, and then other question you kind of touched on a little bit, which was if we have a recording mm-hmm. of a composer conducting right. his own work, his or her own right. work, I should say, does that then trump all the other ones? Tru- it's like, should that be looked at? Because you know, I, oh. I understand if a composer wrote something 
and said, like, I never never conducted it because they either weren't a conductor right. or they did for the reasons you right. touched on, didn't want right. to conduct it. But if, you know, good or not. Does it become the definitive recording? Right. Does it be says, like, if nothing, you can change this stuff all you want, but know that this is, in the same way that we accept cover bands yeah. playing covers, knowing, though, that it's not the real thing. Right. Um, I don't think so. I can't think of an instance, and maybe someone can think of this or Google this or whatever, where a composer has said, this is, this has done the Wagner thing. This is the way it is, and this is the only way it should be. Because I think everybody who exists in this world, and this is, and this is the whole thing about what we're doing, and it's about live performance, right? And this is the problem with this discussion, because we're talking largely about recording that, that are, that are stagnant. Once they're captured, that's it. Right. And that would be my advocation of like what makes live mu- music so fantastic because it's going to be slightly different every time. And it's a living art form. And I don't think a composer would ever say, you know, well, I recorded this two years ago and this is the way it is. And Jim Murray, if you're going to conduct this, you better do it the exact same way. If anything, I find that composers are really interested in how you approach things and and why you do the things that you do. They'll actually act like they'll be, why'd you, why'd you slow down so much there? Why'd you choose this tempo over this tempo? Or why'd you choose to bring out the English horn there? And that's, then they're talking about their own piece of music, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a level, that's such a great conversation because then the conductor can say, well, I felt like this. And you know, if that's right, and, and, then the, and if you're working collaboratively, the composer can be like, yeah, that's awesome. Or the composer's like, well, I'd prefer maybe, right. maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> so, how do you, so then how do you develop... You know, do you, do you develop like your own consistent style as a as a conductor? One I mean, would is hope, that, or is that something that 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 changes a lot from piece to piece? Like, how do you? I mean, obviously, you you go through conductor school. Yeah, I, yeah I have a master's degree in orchestral right. conducting. Right, so, so yes. there's there's the you know actual. Yes. your arm goes this way, then that yes. way, then this way, then yes. that way. But as far as like, how do you develop that actual interpretive style that would one would think if they'd been coming to 20 years of Northland Symphony concert, right. that they would come to expect a certain I would hope so. I would hope so. Um, I think two things. Number one, um, you create... Most conductors have a gestural style um, that they, over the years they've come up with a palette of gestures that works well for them and for good or for bad. That's, that's true. That's it's much easier for have. me when... It's interesting you mentioned that because I found yours more difficult to follow as a violinist on your side than, than a percussionist in your right. front. Yeah. At least on your, like, and I'm talking like side, yeah, side, yeah, yeah. not, you know. And that, we should have probably mentioned that when we talked about the orchestra layout because the view yeah. of the conductor, it's very different if you are completely on the side than if you're straight in front or mm-hmm. all of that. Um, so I think you develop kind of this gestural style um, first and foremost. Interpretationally, um, I think it, you know, you know, learning patterns and stuff like that in school, you know, that's pretty, that's not that complicated. Um, what comes complicated is when you pair, like, the music history with the theory, with the context, that's how you're kind of forming your your artistic decisions. Um, and I think, you know, for me, um, you know, there's a, condu- <laughs> conductors have a saying that the, that you're ready to start rehearsing a piece of music for the first time after you've let it after you've done it in concert. 
like when I get off the podium after the first time I've done a piece, right. then, then, then you're right. then, then, yeah, then, then you're, you're like, comfortable enough and you're right. familiar enough to actually right. You go got through it. The and and, I'm, and what's really fortunate right now is I'm at a point in my career where, where I'm able to return to some pieces, and that's I mean that's such a different experience. And I'm smarter, and I, I know things better, um, and I and that will inform my decisions as I go forward. Um, you know, we all and we also you know we fall under the influence of great conductors and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, are there any particular? Oh, I'm of a generation. I'm 44, so I'm of a generation. So old. (laughs) Thank you. That really, I think, fell under the spell of two seminal figures, and that would be Leonard Bernstein, who's obviously we've talked about, and Herbert von Karajan. And you know, Leonard Bernstein, he was uh, such the consummate educator, composer of West Side Story, conductor of the New York Phil, the first American-born, American-educated conductor of a major American orchestra, because by then, at that point, the bias was you had to go overseas. And then you have Herbert von Karajan, the complete opposite in Berlin, who, like, didn't ever do pattern and, like, just molded and shaped sound with, you know, one of the best orchestras in the world. And and Leonard Bernstein was a little bit more extravagant, although they both had, I guess they both had their extravagancies. And we tend to put them as polar opposites. And so I grew up listening to a lot of Leonard Bernstein. And I I would say there's some idol worship there. and you know he had the he had the New York Philharmonic, and so I used to think, well, those were those were the recordings, man. And I still appreciate it. But what Leonard Bernstein, what I've now learned, being a little bit more educated, is that just because you can play the music that fast doesn't mean you should, <laughs> right? I mean, he right, had the right. he had the musicians who could do it, like Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, the end of the New York Phil's Dance of the Witches Sabbath is so incredibly. I don't know how the trombones do it; they get it done. But so his what I learned interpretationally is that Bernstein was so emotional and his whole approach to music was so emotional was that the fasts are super fast and the slows are super slow. So he went to the extremes. Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean that's right. Right. It might not be correct. Um, and then so and then so Karahan has a different approach um, that's a little bit more. I would say mainstream. So I went from, you know, I still love the Leonard Bernstein stuff, and I still laugh every time I hear the trombones at the end of that stuff. <laughs> and I and I marvel at the virtuosity of that orchestra and how they can play what he's asking them to play. Yeah. But I understand that that might not be exactly what best serves the music, mm-hmm. um, with that being said. Do I have time for my Bernstein story? Sure. All right. So um, obviously I never got to meet him. He died in 91, I think 91. Is that right? I think that's right. Um, and... So I really, you know, grew up under this kind of shadow of Leonard Bernstein. And so, you know, it was a few years, few years ago. And again, you mentioned how old I am. So or called me old. So you can appreciate this. So um, I've read lots of biographies on Leonard Bernstein. I'm well familiar uh, with his books. And um, I had a friend in college uh, when I did graduate school. He was an undergraduate. And, he, and so he ended up um, being in New York. Um, actually, a really successful career as a rehearsal pianist, conductor for Broadway shows, off-Broadway shows. And so we're friends on Facebook, of course. And he posts... Um, hey, orchestra people, I need a recommendation for a recording of Mahler 7. So I happen to see it. I'm the first one to come, and I'm like, dude, there's only one, because Bernstein was the Mahler champion. I'm like, you want Bernstein, and I think it's what's Vienna, Bernstein and Vienna. Unbeknownst to me, my friend is friends with Jamie Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein's daughter. And the next comment is Jamie Bernstein Thanks, Jim Murray, for recommending my father's recording so I didn't have to. 
I'm like, screenshot, screenshot. I'm like, brush with greatness, brush with greatness. And I'm like, and then, of course, what do I do? I'm like, and I, I go, Jamie, like I know her. Right. Like, Jamie. Um, you know, We're her best friends. Yeah, absolutely. We go way back. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I'm a conductor. I'm one, I mean, and she hears this all the time. Right. That, you right. know, influenced by your father and I'm, you know, blah, blah, niceness, 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 niceness. <laughs> and, and she was very gracious about it. And, um. The funny thing was, like, a year later, I went to a conductor's guild in a conference. Yes, there's a guild. We have an organization. And mm-hmm. I had never been to a conference, but it was in my hometown, so it all worked out. So she was one of the guest speakers. I couldn't do it. I didn't go up to her. I couldn't <laughs> be like, I'm that weird guy on Facebook who recommended Molly. To, to be fair, it, <laughs> probably would have, but it probably would have been one of those weird guys yeah, on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, but I still have that screenshot. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm like, I, I, I never got to meet the man, but... I feel like that's. I feel like I did my my service. Yeah, so, yeah. But. Very good, very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, I, mean, I think. Yeah, I feel. It, yeah, I, I feel, feel better like about that topic now. So we'll write down the one that we. Right. Carried yes. on to another one, and then. Uh, yeah. But obviously, I think if you know if people have questions about. Well, and I would say like if you have a favorite work, that's the one to like pull up three or four different recordings, and I mean you can do this kind of experiment and at your home and just listen. To one movement and be like, try to figure out what makes it different. And if you can't figure out what makes it different, at the very at the very least, you're going to be like, I like that one better, or I don't like that one better. And then you get to the why. Ask yourself, what, well, what is it about that one that I like better? And yeah. see if you can't figure it out. Well, if you've got favorite, I mean, I know this is at least the case with me. Like, I have favorite pieces, and when I happen to grab a without paying attention, right, a, lot, yeah. a lot of times I don't. Yeah, a lot of people don't even look at what. Yeah, the I don't realize yeah. what the and, and I'll listen like this is whoa. Like, what is happening here? Right. Like, why are you doing, like, yeah, yeah, so. Something is not right. Something yeah. is not right, and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because, like you said, like, in the popular music, we don't have this issue. Well, we, we, we I mean, nobody. We do and we don't. We, well, we have cover bands, right, but, but they're, they're. You never confuse the two. Right, right. Yeah. There's no, there's, you don't have a presumption. Where if you type in, like, Beethoven 7, and you just click on whatever the first YouTube video is, and you put it on while you're working, a lot of people don't even look to see orchestra, right. conductor, you know, yeah. I can't think of many. So other... to get around this problem, just find Bernstein's version, <laughs> of it, and then you'll be fine. It'll be the fastest or the slowest of that particular <laughs> piece. Of I'm going to go look up all these pieces I was listening to the other day off your list and go oh, find Bernstein, Bernstein and, yeah. and just like so I can listen to the craziness of mm-hmm. it because I do I, it. You'll I, love I, it. it. Yeah. So, all right. So, uh, yeah, I think that was a good discussion. Right. Casey picks coming up next. All right. Welcome back. Time for Jim and John's Casey Picks. I'm going first. All right. With the what to do portion of this. All right. So I've got a play. Okay. You don't look intrigued. I'm listening. <laughs> All right. So the play is called Fences. It's by August Wilson. It's oh, at the KC Rep. I have heard good things about this. Yep. It's going. It's running now uh, through November 5th. Um, the reason I picked it was, uh, I mean, and August Wilson's fairly well-known. He did a big stretch of plays um, about living in Pittsburgh in the 1950s. As, uh, uh, and this specific one, though, has a kind of a local connection as it's the story of a former Negro Leagues player that is uh, and him and his family now living in Pittsburgh in the 1950s. So, um, you know, all the overcoming the challenges that that, uh, that, that presents, but also... 
the fact that he probably could have played in the major leagues had it been available to him at the right. time and kind of some of the that's, emotional that's, things yeah. of that. And obviously mm-hmm. the, the Negro Leagues connection, I think. Um, tickets are yeah. selling really well. Yeah. There, there are still tickets available for most shows, but it's pretty limited. So if you are interested, I would definitely Act check it now. out. Yeah. Um, what do you got going on over there? <laughs> Uh, mine's really completely different um, <laughs> in every possible way. And um, I am going to recommend an event that I have not personally gone to. However, I know I've, I've known this event has existed for many years. I've always wanted to attend. Um, but Maybe this could be your year. Well, it's during the week. It's during the day in the week. Uh, uh, that makes it difficult. But it's not too early to think about the cri- holidays, right? Christmas is true. right around the corner. Um, we should do a podcast on holiday music. Oh, yes. I love holiday yes, music. Yes, I have a lot to say about holiday music. Um, and I enjoy it as well. Uh, but this is going to be Tuba Christmas. So <laughs> I don't know if people understand how what Tuba Christmas is. But Tuba Christmas, and it's it's been going on in the, the Kansas area for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it is... I guess exactly what you might think it is. It is a bunch of tuba players and euphonium, baritone horn mm-hmm. players, getting on stage and playing Christmas music. Now, they did this, you do it the lyric, and they had, even back then, they had so many that they would fill the stage and they had to reserve part of the audience for tuba players. Um, we're talking like 50 tuba, I mean, we're talking a big, right. schools now bring their students. So what floored me when I looked this up, because I'm like, I got, I, I'm going to do tuba Christmas. They have, Two dates for Tuba Christmas. They've expanded. This year they're doing two performances because there are so many tubists and euphonium and baritone horn players that want to do it. It's kind of amazing we have that many it tuba is players amazing. in Kansas it City. It is amazing. I would imagine probably surrounding areas. Yes. Too. Oh, yeah. This this is a big draw. And then now, and now I think the one that's changed that you get like some public schools bringing all their tubists. You get colleges bringing their tubists. And so um, mark these dates down. It's December fourth. Um, and December 8th, it's um, actually, I think, through the Kansas City Symphony website, I think they're yeah. the ones that are sponsoring it. Yeah. Um, it costs, so if you are a tubist, it costs $10 to play. Right. It's a free hour-long concert, I think, at noon. I think that's a Monday and a Friday. It's a lot of tuba. You do need tickets in advance, but they're free. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it. it's going to be a low Christmas. <laughs> so um, there's a lot of hot air. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but um, I, I've always wanted to hear it. Um, I, you know, as a professional musician, I've done my share of judging and adjudicating. And I did uh, one year did a miscellaneous uh, ensemble room, and I got a, a l- mixed low brass quintet, which was three tubas and uh, two baritone horns. And uh, I have a I have a fond me- memory of how that sounded. I can only imagine what that sounds amplified. I was going to say, if you if you this. can't make either show, but you are interested like Jim is, I believe the symphony through its Facebook page yeah. kind of does like a, a Facebook live of yeah. one of the like one of the practice rehearsals yeah. and stuff, and you can at least get a sense, sense for it because it. it's pretty interesting. It, it like, is, and you know, we we haven't got to talking about people in the the, the characteristics that go with individual instruments. I have never met a tuba player who's not fun to be around. This is true. So I can only imagine. I'm sure this concert is a lot of fun. They you're, you get holiday tunes. I'm sure you get a lot of shenanigans, and it's a good time. Yeah, no, I agree. So. I agree. Well, and they all, you know, it's it's not. It's a funny thing to begin with. So they all yes. kind of like feed it. It all yes, feeds it into all, itself. Yes, like it a lot does. of them wear costumes. Oh and yeah, the tubas, and tubas like with Christmas lights on them yeah, and yeah. Santa hats and. Yeah. The whole shebang. Yeah. So. It'll get you in the holiday spirit, for sure. Yeah. So, all right, next is 
what we're listening to. What are you listening to these days? Well, I thought I should pick maybe something more in what people think I listen to. Um, as That's opposed, true. You've gone pretty outside I have, the box. The I have had times. independent artists, Jim's Big Ego, a band out of Boston, um, Hamilton, the musical, uh, Solomon Burke. So I've been all over the map. So I decided let's talk about some Mozart. So obviously I'm a big fan of pretty much everything Mozart wrote. But I want to point out, I want to highlight a very specific piece that is something, one I really love. It's the Adagio in Fugue in C minor. And the reason why I love this is that it's one of the few pieces that um, Mozart actually returned to. So generally when Mozart was done with the piece, that was it. And um, uh, the Adagio is actually, um, if I remember correctly, uh, was a piano duo that he went and added to the string quartet that was his fugue. There's, I've done it in string orchestra versions. There's um, string quartets do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think it's, it's, it might be my mo. Uh, I, <laughs> I can't pick a favorite Mozart. Uh, if you, it would be in my top ten Mozart because it is. I find it to be very progressive. Um, it's very harmonically interesting, and um, it's just it's just a very compelling piece of music. Now, based on our previous conversation, mm-hmm. I believe I'd be remiss. <laughs> I'm sure people are yelling this at the yes. their stereos right now, which is, which recording do they listen to, Jim? That's a great question, and I think what I'll do is you should listen to a few and then come back and tell me which one you like. Wait, so this, now you're giving me homework? I am. I'm turning it around. Well, this backfired. <laughs> I thought it worked out quite nicely, actually. Um, Fine, I will. I will do that, and everyone else can listen to do that, yeah. and then send us in. And then I, will, I, then I will reveal mine at that point. We'll after see, we'll see if they match. Yours. Yes. That'd be something. That'd be, yeah. By Bernstein. Actually, no, it's not. Uh, well, I wonder which one I don't need to listen to, then. That's oh, good. and I'm at, actually, I'm not sure he actually has a recording of that. That's a pretty small niche piece. Yeah. And he stuck kind of the big stuff. That's true. Um, That's so true. I, it may be out there, but, but that probably wouldn't be the one. <laughs> All right, here's a quick sample. All right, so my pick for listening, what I'm listening to, is so this one actually kind of came out of nowhere. So I was searching around my iTunes for stuff to listen to. I'd been mowing the yard. I remember Ben Folds' piece came on. I was like, oh, you know, I'll dig around a little, do, dig around and do some Ben Folds. And when I clicked on his most recent album, I saw that there was a concerto for piano and orchestra, and that triggered... The whole fact that he came here was on a tour playing with orchestras and all that, and I wanted to go, and I couldn't go, and I got all pissed off. But then I remembered, well, okay, well, at least listen to the song. That's the great thing. If you miss it, you can I know. So I know. this really represents crossover. Right? right. And I was really upset that I missed it after listening to it because oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic. I don't know if you listened to it or not. I have not. not. I know so, of it, but I haven't heard yeah, it. Yeah, so it it's awesome. And the reason it's awesome is... Well, there's several reasons. But, I mean, Ben <laughs> Folds is a very—he's a very gifted musician, and he's very classically yeah. like he thinks in a classically trained way mm-hmm. when he's composing stuff and putting stuff together. And he composed this, all the whole thing himself. Um, it's obviously very piano centric, um, which is what his main instrument is. But it's got a very, very Bernstein esque sound to it. It's kind of like a lot of jazz worked in, but not 
so much that it feels jazzy. Is like, it multi-movement? Like a three, concerto? Yeah, three. So, oh, so yeah. he followed like traditional yep. uh, form. Yeah, it's like a 10-minute ten, ten first and then oh. a couple like five-minute movements after that. That's like totally true to form because normally in, in classical concerto, the second and third movement durationally equal the length of the first. Yep, well, that would be very Ben Folsey. Boy, that sounded just so ridiculously nerdy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll try to well, continue we all that. learned something, though. Um, <laughs> Not that you wanted to learn that. But. That's true. So... Uh, yeah, so I mean, I would, I can't recommend it enough. I mean, the whole album's good. It's called the, it's on the So There album. Um, and yeah. Do you think we're going to get fantastic. more of that kind of stuff from him? I hope so. I mean, I think his tour went really well. Yeah. I mean, it was sold out, I think, in a lot of places. But I also so. think that he could be like innovative enough that I could see him move into another direction. Like, I think he's kind of going where, where. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it, you know, he's done it the rock kitschy. band. Like, I think it would, it would, I think it would really help pave a way to say, like, you can do interesting music that's not so modern that nobody right. who likes classical music can right. understand it and it's not so traditional that people that don't enjoy his music can understand. like it was right. a really nice balance I would have loved to seen kind of what the crowd looked like for that event yeah. because you would have had I think both yeah. the, the people who remembered him from Ben Folds 5 and you know you, you kind of have like the rocker arena band concert now you have the the orchestra thing so maybe jazz is next for him or something or like yeah. a jazz trio or combo I, I'd be interested it sounds like he's like really just Following his path as a musician and what comes is what comes. Yeah. Which is great. I agree. I agree. First? Yeah, first. sure. Okay, so I'm. Um, you kind of better. So uh, <laughs> yours is not better than this. Um, so uh, John kind of broke the ice getting into the barbecue conversation, and I understand that this is a very dangerous area in the city of Kansas City because we have a lot of diverse barbecue, and a lot of it is is wonderful. So um, maybe I shouldn't say this is the best barbecue in Kansas City. I will say it is my favorite barbecue in Kansas City. But I think it would be in the top five. And that's Q39. The original restaurant is on 39th Street. They've now um, opened one out south. Uh, You're going to need a reservation anytime you go to this place. Uh, It doesn't matter if you're there at 11 o'clock when they open for lunch or there at three in the afternoon during the quote unquote lull, which doesn't happen there. Um, But they are award-winning barbecue restaurant. Um, Great brisket, great great pork, great Everything's great. Um, I have I have never had anything less than a phenomenal eating experience at that restaurant. So I, if you have not been to Q thirty nine, you need to go. It is good. It is good. <laughs> Thank you for that ringing endorsement. <laughs> however, however, wow. Uh, you know. Jim doesn't really like the Northland. That's why he keeps telling me to go out and eat south. <laughs> hey, the last one I did was Trago, and I did Seva. That that may or may not have happened. You, um, I don't think it's. I don't think you can say. That I'm the here. Doctor of the, the Northland. Northland Symphony does not like the Northland. <laughs> I don't think that's a good thing to say. Um, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> Either way, my restaurant is a Northland restaurant that is. I would say maybe the second best kept secret behind the Northland Symphony in All the right. Northland. Um, and that is Wings Cafe. Now they also have. Are a, they new? N- no, they have they have a new location in Westport. 
Where's um, the Northland location? It is off of Inglewood in 169, kind of back. It's actually pretty close to Side Pockets. I don't know if you know oh, yeah, I know where that is. Yeah. But um, I, I've, I've never heard of this place. So just to give you an idea of how good they are, uh, before I even get into what they what they wow. say. Wow. Okay? All right. So they have 4.5 stars on Google out All of right. 157 ratings. All right. They have a 4.5 stars on Yelp out of 263 ratings. All right, that's good. They have a 4.8 star rating on Facebook out of 230 ratings. For anyone that's had ratings on a Facebook page, that's no, that's hard to maintain yes. something above a 4.5. The haters are always out there. Right, there's always haters, right? Yep. They don't seem to exist here for whatever reason. Now, so what they... Good. It's a good sign. So they serve, obviously, wings. Uh, clearly. Uh, they have what I think is the best uh, fried shrimp in the city. Wow. If you're a fan of those sorts of things. Um, they have great boneless wings. They have great sides, like, you know, the classic sides, collard greens, mac and cheese, like, all great. They do a lot of fried fish, just, like, straight up drop the fillets in, get them out. Um, they've got dry uh, dry rubs that they put on their wings so you don't, if you don't want, like, messy hands and stuff. Wow. Like, all the flavors Seriously? in the dry Yeah. Yeah. It's What's legit. your favorite dish there? I'm a I'm a shrimp I'm I'm actually right, I'm actually not a wings guy like I don't really not, care for, not, but I love the but I love I'm not either I love their like their wings are great and because I can get the I, like I don't like the mess of yeah. the wing but there I can go I get just as much flavor and it's dry yeah I get the uh, the, the chicken's dry obviously but right. the the rubs dry yeah. the the fresh shrimp are <laughs> man I might have to check that out they're really good I'm like you wings are I'm, wings are fine yeah but the, it's worth it's worth the effort worth the worth All the right. trip over there. Um, and they're and they're great, great family, great family. Owned. Locally owned, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, Fantastic. yeah. And they're awesome. Yeah. So, anyways, if you're looking for something a little different, something a little hidden, something that probably most of your friends don't know about, you should take them over there. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, so that's it. That's it for episode six. six. That's hard to believe that we've done six already. Probably hard for everybody listening to believe too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, thank you to our sponsors, Zonarosa. Yeah. Uh, again, be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that on Google Play. You can do that on Stitcher. If you're listening on the website, very much appreciate that. If you could also go to one of those three services and at least subscribe, um, that'll help us out with searches as people are looking for what to listen to and help us grow our listening base. You can sign up for our email list and our mailing list on NorthlandSymphony.org. Any final words, Mr. Jim? Nope. We'll be back for Episode 7 before you know it. Sounds good. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Bye.